Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your heart must have been gladdened last weekend. You know, dear listener, we here in uh, Great Britain celebrated Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. And uh, for an outspoken (laughs) monarchist like you, Eamon, you must have been in seventh heaven. You must have just been overjoyed. Absolutely. As an avid monarchist myself, whether in the West or in the Middle East, wherever there is monarchy, I believe there is always stability. This is what I always say. I can't deny that I myself was watching, uh, you know, some of the splendor of the pageantry, uh, you know, and I was moved to tears on occasion. There's something very moving about the, exactly. the sense of you're, history. Y- the sense you're of... an American who just want to yearn back to the days when you were Yes, it's Ruled. true. A penitent <laughs> American. Um, right. Well, we've got a big episode today with lots to cover. So let's get straight into it. Right, dear listeners, today, having flitted around the edges of the Ottoman Empire for most of this season, we're going straight to the jugular, straight to the heart of that empire, to Istanbul, or Constantinople if you prefer, and to the epic historic conflict between Turks and Greeks, a conflict most painfully manifest today on the divided island of Cyprus the invasion of which by Turkish troops in 1974 was yet another egg in the face of the declining British Empire, one of the defining events of the Cold War period, and a living witness to the ongoing clash of civilizations in the Middle East. Turkey and Greece, Greece and Turkey, it's the epic battle, (laughs) perhaps the battle to end all battles. Absolutely. I mean, you can't have Turkey without having Greece poured over it. Goodness gracious. <laughs> it's the battle to end all battles when the holy and pious Orthodox Greeks, like reincarnated Achaeans storming the battlements of a Turkish Troy, finally regain control over their greatest city and most outstanding sign of their election by God, Constantinople, the new Rome, the navel of the world, inaugurating (laughs) the return of the Roman Empire, the return of Jesus Christ, and the apocalyptic end of the world. What do you think, Avon? Muslim jihadists aren't the only ones obsessed with fever dreams of the end times, (laughs) let me tell you. (laughs) I tell you something. I've never seen a city besides Jerusalem which had so many prophecies told about it, like Istanbul or Constantinople. We're going to get into all that sort of stuff. Uh, We love it here on Conflicted. We love going back deep into time and even eschatology uh, long into the future. But now that we're zeroing in on Turkey, Amen, you're going to say, oh, you know what? I'm actually a direct descendant of the Osmanli dynasty and my great-grandfather was Pasha (laughs) the Sanjak of Rumelia or something like that, right? (laughs) No, no. You know, my DNA states that I'm 9% Turkish. And that is due to my Turkish grandmother. You had a uh, Turkish grandmother? Yeah, she was half Turkish with some Greek mix, Kurdish mix. It's a very strange mix. She was 
Born in Konya. Konya. Grew up, yeah, Konya. Ah, home of the whirling dervishes. Was your grandmother known for her whirling, Eamon? Only if she's whirling, like, I mean, loaves of bread before she cooked them in the (laughs) oven. (laughs) Now, Eamon, as you know, I like to add something from the present day whenever possible as an entryway into each episode's discussion. And for this episode, my goodness, there is a huge number of current conflicts involving Turkey and Greece that we might draw upon. Right now, a massive struggle over gas rights in the Aegean involving Libya and France as well. Turkey currently manipulating NATO for maximum geopolitical benefit over Ukraine and Russia and all that stuff. The economic collapse that's happening in Turkey with huge inflation and uh, the possible downfall of President Erdogan as a result, which I could press you on because you assured us in season two, Eamon, that uh, President Erdogan's stewardship of the economy there was excellent, but I don't want to talk about that now. And just this morning, news reports are saying that President Erdogan is demanding that Greece demilitarize its Aegean islands while accusing the United States of threatening Turkey with its military bases in Greece and elsewhere, which may have something to do with Turkey's upcoming presidential election only a year away. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to talk about any of those things. I want to talk about something else. The reconversion into a mosque from a museum of the greatest building ever built anywhere on the planet, Hagia Sophia. Ah, yeah. The Aya Sophia, as the Turks would pronounce it. The Aya Sophia, uh, that's right. Yeah. This is one of the most contentious issues, and it is definitely was used as basically a theater. I said it was completely a political spectacle in order to shore up Erdogan's political image that is as the savior of Islam, as the protector of Islam, as the leader of the Neo-Ottomans. As you know, and of course, like I mean, you can tell us more about the history of the Hagia Sophia as a church, but the Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque in 1453. After 1453, the, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, 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 year. the infamous year when the Turks finally conquered Constantinople. And then in 1935, the great Turkish president, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, turned it into a museum. Indeed. The whole idea is that Ataturk wanted to put a stop to Greek claims on the Hagia Sophia. So, okay, if I keep it as a mosque, there will always be this outcry all the time, you know, well, it is time for it to be returned to the Greek Orthodox Church. So he decided, well, make it a museum, make it a secular monument. So that's it. No one can claim it. Muslims, Greeks, no one. Well, that all changed in March 2019 when President Erdogan formally announced his intention to change the museum back into a mosque, which then formally happened in July 2020. Friday prayers were said there inside Hagia Sophia for the first time in 86 years. This is a kind of a dividing line. Hagia Sophia, is it a secular museum or a religious place of worship, a mosque? Orhan Pamuk, the famous Turkish novelist, he said, Kemal Ataturk changed Hagia Sophia from a mosque to a museum, honoring all previous Greek Orthodox and Latin Catholic history, making it a symbol of Turkish modern secularism. He said it loud and clear. Kemal Ataturk changed it into a museum as a symbol of Turkish modern secularism. Well, President Erdogan has said that that was a very big mistake. So, Eamon, you have it, a question perfectly symbolizing the clash of civilizations we've been discussing throughout the season. Is Hagia Sophia a museum or a mosque? Well, if you ask my honest opinion, and this is just a personal preference, for me, I look at the Hagia Sophia, and just next to it is the Blue Mosque, and I see that the Blue Mosque was built 
you know, by the Ottoman sultans because they were finding it rather difficult to pray in a place which was full of the icons of Jesus and uh, Virgin Mary. So they built that mosque specifically for that. So if they were not comfortable praying in the Hagia Sophia, then why not return it back to being a church? Uh, for the Greek Orthodox. No, seriously, because Amen, already, always with the outsider perspective. Look, there is already a monument you know, to Islam there, which is the Blue Mosque. And you could restore this as a church for the Greek Orthodox, and you end up with a perfect symbol of coexistence. Oh, well, you see, Erdogan is giving voice to a pre-modern conception of history where Islam was triumphant and the conversion of Hagia Sophia into a mosque in 1453 was God's will. The secularists are saying, no, 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 we need to be modern. It's a modern story where religion is something old, moving forward, a secular, scientific, rational modernity, perfectly symbolized by a museum. Whereas you, Eamon, you have a postmodern narrative. You just wish everyone to get along. All religions are equal. Everything's relative. Christians can have their church. Muslims can have their mosque. And, you know, why do we need to fight about it? Well, I'm sick of conflicts, Thomas. I need. <laughs> I want people to get along. I'm, that's why we are here on Conflicted. Okay, okay. I, I'll give you that much. Right. We're meant to be talking about the Cold War. Though, my goodness, we do meander, don't we? <laughs> and in our last episode, we talked about India's first successful nuclear test, Operation Smiling Buddha, in 1974. And in this episode, we're talking about an event from that same year. Turkey's invasion of the island of Cyprus in 1974, an island that is still divided to this day between a Greek-speaking republic in the south and a Turkish-speaking republic in the north, though only Turkey recognizes that Turkish-speaking republic. But to explain that invasion properly and to put it in the right context, we have to go, as we always do, back much further into history, back to the rise of Islam and to the epic contest between the new caliphate in the age-old Roman Empire. And I'm calling a spade a spade here. It wasn't the Byzantine Empire. That's a slur. It was the Roman Empire. The Jihad of Jihads. If I'm not mistaken, Eamon, ISIS and other maniacs are still sort of fighting that Jihad, aren't they? It's all about bringing down Rome. Oh, yeah. For them, Rome referred to Europe and any territories that were under the domain of the Roman Empire, whether in the east or the west. And... They do truly you know, believe in the prophecies of Islamic eschatology that not only Constantinople will fall, but also Rome, the second city you know, within Christendom, will fall too. I see. So they're extending the prophecies to include the city of Rome. I'm not sure that's how it was understood originally, but that doesn't matter. The point is, is the epic contest between the caliphate and the Roman Empire the Great Jihad lasted 820 years, from the Battle of Yarmouk along the Syrian-Jordanian border in 636 to the conquest of Constantinople in 1453. I cannot overstate how important this struggle was to world history, not to mention just how cool it was. I, I love <laughs> the idea of this endless contest between the Arab Muslims and the Christian Greeks. It's not considered polite to say so these days, but jihad, you know, the military struggle to expand the caliphate was a fundamental part of early Islam. And the final conquest of the Roman Empire of its glorious capital city, Constantinople, had religious and even apocalyptic meaning for Muslims throughout those eight centuries. 822 years. And within these 822 years of persistent, continuous struggle, 49 attempts at conquering Constantinople itself. Oh my As if God. they were obsessed with it. 
They were obsessed with it. The marchlands between the two empires became fixed and stretched diagonally from ancient Cilicia, you know, where the Turkish city of Adana is today, yeah. basically to the present day Turkish Georgian border. So there's a sort of diagonal line across the Taurus Mountains, across the Anatolian plain. And military incursions into Anatolia became a religious, almost ritualized part of Islam for centuries. Yeah, yeah. Many caliphs actually, like I mean, used to say that one year I go to the Hajj and one year I cross the Taurus Mountains. That's right. It was like the counterpart to the Hajj. The Hajj yeah. and the Jihad against the Romans were the two great kind of caliphal rituals. Absolutely. And, you know, just to give a sense of how important this contest was in the in the imagination of Muslims, and especially how important the, the building Hagia Sophia was, I found a couple of quotes, both from the 13th century, both from Persians, actually. One says, Oh, Hagia Sophia, that great temple. Oh, the wonders and antiquities in the Hippodrome. Constantinople is greater even than its name. May God make it an abode for Islam by his grace and generosity. God the exalted, the willing. (laughs) Yeah, because don't forget the prophecies. They were ever so present in the back of the minds of these Muslims. Yes, I mean, the the fighting went on and on. uh, And in general, the Byzantines were able to defend the line. Even uh, for a couple of centuries, they managed to conquer a bit of Syria back from the caliphate. But eventually, that marchland, that border, which Mm -hmm. the Arabs called Al-Awasim, this border remained essentially unbreached until the year, the key year of 1071. Ah, the Battle of Manzikert. <laughs> we did discuss the Battle of Manzikert in episode two, the one on Azerbaijan, when we talked about the arrival of the Oghuz Turks onto the scene of the Middle East. Well, at the Battle of Manzikert, the Seljuks, the Oghuz Turkish Confederation, overran Anatolia. Islamdom reached the Bosphorus. This is, in fact, the context for the Crusades, where the Roman emperor called upon the Pope in Rome to help him throw off the Seljuks and retake Anatolia, but you know, it didn't really work out like that. <laughs> they were very unwelcome guests, let's put it this way, <laughs> those Catholic pests. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we don't have time to tell the whole story, which is a pity, since it's the greatest story ever told. But eventually an upstart Turkish warlord called Osman rose up, gained leadership of all the other Turks, and founded a dynasty named after him, which we call the Ottomans, which gained control of Anatolia, managed to cross over the Bosphorus and slowly, slowly conquer all of southeastern Europe until finally, in 1453, Osman's great, 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 great grandson, Mehmet II, conquered Constantinople. Amen. describe what this would have meant to Muslims at the time, and in fact, what it means to Muslims to this day. I can tell you that the Muslims who were living in the 1450s were totally demoralized, you know, and for very good reasons. First of all, they just recovered two centuries ago from the biggest calamity ever befell them, which is the Mongol invasions. And at the same time, they lost Andalusia. There was a very little sliver of land in Granada, and that's it. That's all what is left of the great Muslim civilization in Spain. So at the time they felt that, you know, their civilization was almost gone. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the news came that Mehmet II conquered Constantinople and it's now in Muslim hands and the prophecy have been fulfilled. The Muslim historians of that era could not have written with more jubilation and in a more awe 
of what really happened. So it was a real shot in the arm for Islam's sense of confidence, sense of sort of self-esteem. Absolutely. You know, so the conquest of Constantinople in 1453 couldn't have come at a better time, let's put it this way, for the Muslims. Well, what about today, though? I know the Greeks still remember 1453 as a great tragedy. But what do Muslims today think of that year, 1453, and that epic achievement, the conquest of Constantinople? Does it factor in Islamic historical understanding today? Yeah, because as a young man growing up in Saudi Arabia, the reality is that there were only two sultans you know, of the Ottoman Empire that we knew you know, their names and we knew their biography. Mahmoud II and Suleiman the Magnificent. The two greatest Ottoman sultans, really. Indeed. Yeah. And why? For their conquest. So, you know, the fact is that there were dramas, you know, there were school texts of a drama, of a theatrical drama, you know, about the conquest of Constantinople. And, you know, the great characters that fought that war from Genoese mercenaries, you know, from the Janissaries, the Ottoman, you know, stormtroopers, if we can call them this way. Right, and, the huge Hungarian cannon. That, that, and the <laughs> Hungarian cannon, urban, you know, of all people. Yeah, like urban. <laughs> I think it's important to really try to give a sense of the Ottoman state and how it understood itself. I mean, it called itself the eternal state. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan claimed an extraordinary range of titles. He was the Sultan of Sultans, the Khan of Khans, Commander of the Faithful, Caliph, i.e. successor of the Prophet, custodian of the three holy cities, and also Emperor of the Romans, Roman Caesar. That was one of his titles. So in terms of the grand historical narrative of all the Abrahamic faiths, the Ottoman Sultan was truly the universal emperor. He united in his person all the realms, all the kingdoms. He was the protector and guarantor of all faith in the one God. Oh, yeah. And that is why the Ottomans created the system, which called the millet system, which came from the Arabic word millah. Because, you see, in the Quran it says, millata Ibrahim, which means the faith of Abraham. So it is understood not to be a traditional religion, you know, in the traditional sense with rituals, but more of teachings, like, you know, faith from the teaching point of view. But in, in the Ottoman Empire, it became ultimately really a signifier of your subjecthood, because the, the Ottoman Empire based the identity of its subjects on their religious tradition, and the millets were almost like state departments where you know they, they comprised judicial courts and things. So a Christian, an Orthodox Christian, would go and seek legal redress in his own courts, which were run by the Orthodox Church in that case. Uh, this system exists to this day, actually, in some um, Arab countries which were ruled uh, by the Ottomans. For example, there were three recognized millets you know, or faith beside Islam. Uh, so Islam, of course, basically is you know, at the top of the food chain. And then you have the three other religions, three other millets. Uh, you have Judaism, you have Christian Armenians, and you have Christian Greeks. They were actually called, it was called the Roman millet, that was literally like a millet room, the yeah. Roman millet, which was the Orthodox Church and all Orthodox Christians, whatever their ethnic background, so Serbs, even Arab Orthodox. There was the Armenian millet, which actually in, included all non-Orthodox Christians, the Syriac Christians, the Copts, they were within the Armenian millet, and then the Jewish millet, which obviously was for the Jews. 
the reason for this system to exist and having all of these religious communities having their own different you know kind of courts and uh, tribunals and arbitration committees and all of that is because the divorces the marriages inheritances and intra-communal transactions all of these you know were going to be difficult to be done according to sharia only you know you can't impose sharia on cops in egypt or on armenians you know in the eastern anatolia i mean that's why they were given the right to have their own courts so they can have their own marriages they can have their own divorces they can have their own inheritances and they can transact among themselves so the court system for them was essential and that is why the millet system was there because there was no secular modern nation state as we discussed before thomas there was no secular state at all there was nothing exactly. like a modern state there wasn't sort of the rule of law in the way we understand the rule of law this one law for everyone all people equal under the law it wasn't that way at all it was a traditional patrimonial hierarchical system where each religious community governed itself to a large degree for example the ecumenical patriarch in constantinople the chief prelate of the orthodox church was essentially given secular rule over the Rum millet, over the Roman millet. All Romans were under his rule because the sultan thought, well, the whole empire is under my rule, especially Muslims, and I delegate that rule to the patriarch to rule the Roman Christians. I think the point, though, moving forward, is it means that in a pre-nationalist age, the citizens or the subjects of the Ottoman empire did not identify with their nation with their ethnos with their language that sort of they identified with their religious tradition okay so moving on you know basically the hundred years after the conquest of constantinople basically 1450 to 1550 let's say everything changed and i mean everything kind of everywhere early modernity as it's called you know the modern world was born the main thing that happened in that century is that the three what are called gunpowder empires were established. Now, we have talked about the end of all three of these empires in this season of conflicted. Now we're talking about the period of their formation. The Ottomans, they conquer Constantinople uh, in 1453. They reach their territorial peak in 1566. So in that hundred years, they, they become one big gunpowder empire. The Safavids in the same century conquer Iran and create the second big gunpowder empire, the Safavid Empire. And from 1526, the Mughals conquer India, establishing the third great gunpowder empire, the Mughal Empire. So you have three huge empires controlling the whole world from basically Algeria to Bangladesh and from Hungary to Yemen. They're religiously Muslim, culturally Persianate, dynastically Turkic, and politically Mongol. This was really the world. And the establishment of this imperial zone, you know, changed everything. And it's the theater, becomes the theater against which Europe begins its ascent to power. You know, Europe, and you know, specifically Christendom here, was only, uh, you know, in Europe. Like, I mean, it was only like, I mean, in a corner in Europe. And they felt that because the Ottomans were encroaching, you know, from, you know, the Balkans and, you know, going all the way to the gates of Vienna. So the Habsburgs, the Russians and everyone basically were really, really frightened of this new uh, empire. And therefore, the Europeans were looking for how do we bypass this great empire so we can conduct trade with the East without having to go through them and having to pay significant amount of money to them, just like 
today's Europeans thinking, how do we get rid of Russian energy and how do we get rid of paying so much to the <laughs> Russian <laughs> empire? You know? It's true. I mean, the, the Ottomans actually closed off the Mediterranean to non-Ottoman shipping to some large extent. And yeah, as you say, the Europeans then needed to find new trade routes, which demanded that they explore not just the sea, but the oceans, which had never really been done properly before. This required the Europeans to develop sophisticated naval technology to allow them to explore the oceans. In 1498, Vasco da Gama reached India via the Cape of Good Hope around Africa. So this is, another, this is the other great thing that's happening during this very pivotal century. At the same time, Greek intellectuals who were fleeing the Ottoman conquest brought their literature, ancient Greek literature and learning with them to Italy. This gave a new Greek flavor to the growing movement, you know, known really as Renaissance humanism, and injected Western Europe with new ideas or with a new way of developing intellectually. You know, this led to the Reformation in the 16th century, the Scientific Revolution in the 17th century, and the Enlightenment in the 18th century. So the Ottoman conquest and the establishment of these gunpowder empires had a knock-on effect in that way too leading to the development of Europe. There you have it. Europe facing a enemy armed with two frightening weapons. One was the massive cannons they used and their gunpowder. And the other frightening weapon was the Janissaries. You know, European boys kidnapped, you know, from Europe, you know, from the Balkans and other places and brought up to be the crack troops of the Ottoman Empire, the Janissaries. So the Janissaries, with the aid of the cannons, were the scourge of Europe. So Europe and European kingdoms and the European royal families, I mean, had to come together and to try to really explore more scientifically how to counter the Ottoman advances and how to actually build better cannons to counter the Ottoman cannons. And that led further and further towards not only competition between the great European powers, but between them and the Ottoman Empire. And that led to many inventions, the Renaissance you know, coming in with greater scientific discoveries and openness towards embracing science and, of course, openness towards exploring the oceans, as you said. And you have the recipe for a great power to rise. Yes, so these wars were like an engine for technological development in Europe. And they also forged the modern European state, you know, a, a centralized, bureaucratic, military state able to prosecute war on a big scale, first to defend itself from Ottoman aggression, and then to push the Ottomans back to some extent and reclaim some of the lost lands uh, for Christendom. All right, so that's a little breathless, sweeping <laughs> description <laughs> of the rise of modern Europe. But this whole episode is supposed to be about Cyprus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's spend a moment and talk about Cyprus. So the first thing to know about Cyprus is that Aphrodite was born there. Ooh, I didn't Did know you that. know that? Oh, no, no. I didn't. That, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, she was born in Cyprus, and there was an ancient Greek sanctuary to her honor uh, on the island of Cyprus. So Phoenicians, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, the whole shit show passed through Cyprus. But in the, in the early uh, Islamic period, a near miracle happened. It's called the condominium. So the jihad of the caliphate against the Roman Empire is raging. But somehow, by some miracle, 
the island of Cyprus was shared between them. They agreed to rule Cyprus jointly between the Roman emperor and the Muslim caliph. And, you know, taxes were distributed equally to both sides. And for many hundreds of years, Cyprus was this place of weird Muslim Christian peace. Did you know that, Eamon? Oh, yes, I knew about the condominium arrangement, and it's all due to trade. No one wanted to kill the uh, golden goose. Oh, Cyprus was important for trade. Oh, yes, no question. A trade industry, products, you know, food, everything you can imagine. The ports were very important. And so the two empires decided not to destroy it. Its wealth then must have uh, encouraged Richard the Lionheart because he conquered it <laughs> during oh, yes. the Crusades, uh, which began several centuries of so-called Frankish rule on Cyprus. Uh, and then the Venetians grabbed it. And then finally, in 1571, the Ottomans conquered it and incorporated it into their empire. The millet system applied to Cyprus, as it applied to the rest of the empire, of course. So its Christian inhabitants were governed by the Archbishop of Cyprus. Now, this is important <laughs> for the uh, the 74 Turkish invasion. So Indeed. the Archbishop of Cyprus became a very important political figure on the island. Anyway, in 1878, Britain invaded Cyprus, and it became the first Ottoman province controlled by the British Empire. Uh, at the time, the Cypriots, the vast majority of whom were Greek-speaking Christians, by and large gave the British their support. And this is because they expected the British to arrange for Cyprus to unite with their fellow Greek speakers in the Kingdom of Greece. But where did this country come from? There we were talking about the Ottomans and their sublime eternal state. But what is this Kingdom of Greece? Well, it came as a result of the Greek Revolution. The Greek Revolution of 1821. Absolutely. The first successful national uprising that resulted in a major province of the Ottoman Empire becoming an independent kingdom. Yes, so right. As I said, Greek learning traveled west after the Turkish conquest, and this learning contributed massively to Renaissance humanism. But then in the 18th century, networks of Greeks across Europe, you know, merchants, traders, etc., brought back Enlightenment ideas to their fellow Greeks in the Ottoman Empire. So Greek ideas went west, and then they came back 300 years later to the Greeks there. Until then, the Orthodox Christian inhabitants of the empire, and especially the Greek-speaking ones, called themselves Romei, Romans. That's how they understood themselves. They were Romans. But in the meantime, Western Europeans, like the English, the French, they'd sort of adopted ancient Greece, and especially ancient Athens, as the semi-mythical font of their own new modern civilization. And Greek speakers began adopting that story for themselves as well. Now, this led Greek national self-identity to be split, just like I often say that Muslim self-identity is split, between Indeed. a Greek, a Hellenic identity rooted in the idea of ancient Greece, and a Roman identity rooted in the history of the Christianized Roman Empire of the East. Anyway, with these new nationalist ideas, the Greek Revolution broke out in 1821. This is a massive oversimplification of what is a fascinating and complex story, but the revolt broke out among Greeks throughout the European half of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, all the way from what is today, Romania, obviously Greece, in Thrace, you know, in Constantinople itself. So the Greeks were spread out all over the place. Revolt broke out and was quickly suppressed everywhere except in the southern half of modern Greece, the Peloponnese, Attica, where Athens is, that part of the, of the country, where the rebels uh, managed to really hold their own. To fight them, 
the Sultan in Istanbul reached out to a longtime friend of the podcast. You know who I'm talking about, don't you, Ayman? Oh, yeah, Muhammad Ali of Egypt. Yes, they called Muhammad Ali of Egypt. Uh, he sent his son Ibrahim to crush the Greeks. He was fresh off crushing the Saudi first Saudis. Do you remember, Ayman? Yeah, that's about why that. there is... There is so much affinity between the Saudis and the Greeks because they both <laughs> felt the Turkish wrath through the power of Muhammad Ali and his sons, Ibrahim and Konso. <laughs> it is amazing how Muhammad Ali and his son, Ibrahim, come up again and again in these podcast episodes. I mean, they were so important. So Muhammad Ali sends Ibrahim to crush the Greek uprising, and Ibrahim would have done it too. But then Britain and France decided to intervene. Uh, they destroyed Ibrahim's fleet at the famous Battle of Navarino, and eventually, in 1932, the Kingdom of Greece was proclaimed. It was a very weird thing. It had a German king from Bavaria. It was a puppet of foreign powers. But nonetheless, it was independent of the Ottoman Empire, and it was this Greek kingdom that, 50 years later, when the British took Cyprus, the Archbishop of Cyprus, speaking on behalf of the island's Christian majority made it clear that he expected Cyprus to unite with it. But nonetheless, 50 years later, after the British took Cyprus, the Archbishop of Cyprus, speaking on behalf of the island's Christian majority, made it clear that he expected Cyprus to unite with the Kingdom of Greece, a policy known as enosis, union, a notorious policy that would in time lead to the 1974 Turkish invasion. But Thomas, why would you think the British would give up this strategic prize in the Eastern Mediterranean, which overlooks the Levant, and it will become a useful, useful place for the British to launch uh, the invasion of Egypt, and uh, later they would be able to control the Suez Canal from? Why would they do that? Well, they, they in fact, wouldn't, Amen. So the British uh, declined <laughs> the archbishop's uh, uh, suggestion of uniting with Greece and kept Cyprus to itself. Now, then the world ended. <laughs> I'm talking about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. We've told that story a hundred ways already across several episodes, but this time we're going to tell it through the prism of one of the greatest men of the 20th century, and certainly the greatest Ottoman of the 20th century, Ataturk. Go for it, Eamon. Ah, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Do you know that he was born of all places in Staloniki? He was born in, in, in modern-day Greece. And, 18, uh, he was born in 1881 in Salonika. Yeah. Indeed. And the irony is that, you know, while he came from uh, humble means, he was orphaned at a young age. And nonetheless, like, I mean, he, through his intermittent education, he excelled to the point where one of his teachers was calling him perfect, Kamal, you know, which is the Arabic word, sorry, it's an Arabic word lent to Turkish. So... He then finally finds his way through into the uh, military academy in Istanbul, graduates, and one of the first battles he will engage in, guess against who? The Italians Indeed. in Libya. <laughs> in Libya, of all places, <laughs> which we talked about in the last episode. He was one of those who fought against the Libyans uh, on behalf of the Ottomans before, of course, the Ottomans surrendered uh, Libya to the Italians. Then... He was stationed in many different places. He, he participated in the War of the Balkans. And when World War I began, he was in Bulgaria. By that time, he was already many years into being a member of an underground revolutionary uh, military movement that wanted to overthrow the monarchy 
and the Sultan. Well, it was certainly an anti-monarchical secret society of, of military officers, a bit like, you know, the, the one that, you know, the, the young officers movement that Nasser was a part of, the young officers movement that Gaddafi would be a part of. You know, it, it's funny, Ataturk in a way paved the way. He joined this secret society of military officers who were part of a long gestating reformist movement within the Ottoman Empire. Indeed. He really wanted to emulate France. I mean, he was an admirer you know, of uh, European secular renaissance. And he said exactly this. There are many cultures, but there is only one civilization, and that is Europe. Yes, he was definitely a pro-Westerner in the sense of uh, wanting the Ottoman Empire to reform along European lines and to become a secular, you know, modern state in the, uh, you know, like European states. So World War I breaks out. That's where we left Ataturk in Bulgaria. He's, a, he's assigned to, to Gallipoli. He, he commanded the Turkish forces at Gallipoli, a tremendous victory. And then he was sent to Eastern Anatolia where he trounced the Russians. And eventually he, he was in charge of the Seventh Army fighting the British in Syria and Palestine. Yes, but that campaign was doomed because he was under-equipped and the British, of course, were overwhelming the uh, Turks, not only with their forces, but with the auxiliary Arab forces you know, that were accompanying them. Which we talked about in previous episodes, the episode on Syria, the episode on the Hashemites. After the war, you know, the empire, the Ottoman Empire, which was on the side of the Germans, so it lost. Uh, it was occupied by the victorious allies. And Ataturk becomes a founding member of the Turkish national movement. So this aimed at securing Turkish national sovereignty. And to that end, it opposed the Sultan, Mehmet IV, because they considered him a collaborator with the allies, because he was actually willing to negotiate some kind of truce with them. The truce in question is the infamous Treaty of Sevres. Actually, the Treaty of Sevres, what, what it did is to completely dismember the Ottoman Empire into many zones of influence from Levant and Iraq, you know, which was divided between the British and the French. You know, you have you know, the Armenians taking a chunk, the Georgians, the Soviets like, taking a chunk, and you have the Italians taking a huge chunk as well as the Greeks. And the rump Ottoman Empire, the remaining rump, would be just a puppet state for the Europeans. The treaty did not abolish the Ottoman Empire, but yes, it greatly reduced its territory. So the Sultan, you know, agreed to this. The Ataturk found this to be totally unacceptable. Uh, at the same time, the treaty put the Aegean city of Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir, and the surrounding region under Greek protection. It called for a plebiscite to determine whether Smyrna and its environs would stay in the empire or join the Greek state. Now, this really got Ataturk's blood up because, you know, the, the Aegean coast of Turkey, as it now is, is very economically and strategically important. There were a lot of Turkish speakers in the area, although it's arguably the majority were Greek. This is the, a big showdown. It's called the Greco-Turkish War. The Greeks had invaded and occupied Smyrna the year before, uh, and following the treaty, the Greeks began marching inland to conquer as much land as they could, even in their dreams, maybe Constantinople itself. The Greeks were really fired up. They're going to finally get it back, you know, uh, but it didn't work out that way. Indeed, because of the fact that uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk gathered the remnants of the Ottoman army, united them in coherent, coordinated units, and started what is now known as the Turkish War of Independence. Exactly. And they, they trounced the Greeks. They pushed them into the sea, burning down Smyrna. Well over 100,000 people 
uh, civilians were killed in the process. Ataturk has been accused of masterminding that effort. Obviously, Turks contest this, because, but it seems pretty They contest clear. everything, don't worry. <laughs> it seems clear that he did that. Uh, it was it, it, very brutal. The Greeks remember it today with great sadness. In fact, it happened 100 years ago this year. The Indeed. burning of Smyrna, the expulsion of a one and a half million Greek speakers from Asia Minor, from Anatolia, uh, and at the same time, a half a million Muslims from what is now Greece to Turkey. There was this incredible exchange of populations, uh, you know, really extinguishing 3,000 years of Greek inhabitation of Asia Minor. It's called the Asia Minor disaster uh, in Greece, and it, it's, it really reverberates to this day. This war of independence is what cemented Mustafa Kemal's legacy and legend and that is why he was given in later years the title of Ataturk. Ataturk actually is not his surname. Ataturk is a title given to him by the Turkish media at the time, and it means father of the Turks. Father of the Turk. You know, as we said, Ataturk was dedicated to Turkish sovereignty and independence, but he was not anti-Western. Quite the contrary. He was anti-traditional and staunchly pro-Western. He just didn't want Western countries to bully Turkey or boss it around. And to this end, following his victory in the Turkish War of Independence, he established a very rigorous revolutionary regime in Turkey, basically transforming Turkey into a modern secular nation state. As we've said in the past, he abolished the caliphate. He launched a policy of Turkification. Everyone becomes a Turk. He abolished the Arabic script and introduced the Roman alphabet. He banned traditional costume, forced everyone to wear Western dress. He liberated women to some large extent. He, in one big, you know, galloping go, <laughs> transformed Turkey from a traditional patrimonial Ottoman hierarchical state into a modern state, and in so doing, became the model for all of the great modernizers that we've talked about this season, from Reza Shah in Iran to Nasser in Egypt, to all of them. Ataturk was the first. When it comes to Ataturk's reforms, they are viewed with mixed feelings in Turkey, even today. The urban you know, populations love him so much. The rural, not so much. They are grateful for his victories and for the founding of the republic. They are not so grateful for you know, what they consider to be an attack on faith. Uh, which he did, and the banning of Arabic, uh, even as a liturgical language. You know, the Adhan, the call to prayer actually was done in Turkish for many years because, you know, of uh, Mustafa Kemal's reforms. In the Arab world, however, no, he is universally uh, despised and hated. Really? Yeah, yeah, for two reasons. The first is because he got rid of the Arabic uh, script and the adoption of the Latin script, and for even trying to get rid of as many lone Arabic words in the Turkish language. That's right. He purged the Turkish language of Arabic words. Yeah, mm. indeed. So he, he, you know, they saw this as a rabid anti-Arabism. Uh, <laughs> it <yeah>. was. <laughs> yes, it was. Rather than you know any uh, attempt at modernization. I'm trying to be fair to him. Like, and I mean, from his own point of view, like you know that he uh, experienced defeat. You know, in the Syrian campaign, at the hands of not only the British but the Arabs too, and so um, you know, he might have like you know, some valid reasons, but he of course went too far uh, in his anti-Arab sentiments, and so he is hated as well as the fact that they you know believe that he went too far in attacking fundamentals of Islam 
as a religion, including basically the teaching of the Quran and the call to prayer in Turkish. Well, rushing to the end here, you know, we can quickly summarize the Second World War period. Now, Turkey was neutral uh, until the very end of the Second World War when it joined on the side of the Allies, <laughs> luckily for it. And after <laughs> the war, the Soviet Union actually started a big military buildup in the Black Sea, in the Caucasus, intending to, you know, not necessarily to conquer Turkey, but certainly to force its will upon it. But the Americans sailed to the rescue and Stalin backed off. Now, Greece, you know, ultimately we're, we're talking about a conflict between Greeks and Turks in Cyprus. So Greece uh, in the Second World War was conquered by Germany. Uh, and after its liberation by the Allies, the country fell into a terrible civil war between communists and anti-communist royalists, and the royalists won, obviously. So both countries fell within the uh, orbit of the West. Both countries joined NATO in 1952, and it was understood that perhaps by being in NATO, their age-old rivalry, the rivalry between Greece and Turkey, the rivalry between Greeks and Turks would be laid to rest, except for Cyprus. Uh, you know, I started this episode saying, in order to understand what happened in 1974 in Cyprus, you have to go back to the beginnings of Islam. You have to go back to uh, different narratives of the of Constantinople, of Greekness, of Turkishness, of what these things mean, because they all played out in a big and very tragic way on the island of Cyprus, beginning in the 20th century. As far as post World War II Cyprus, we could say that the inhabitants of the islands were divided between 80% uh, Greek-speaking Christians and 20% Turkish-speaking Muslims. That's um, right. And the island was ruled by the British. Yeah, throughout all of this, throughout the First World War, the Second World War, throughout all of these things, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, it had remained peacefully within the British Empire. Indeed. And they had two massive you know, bases there, uh, military bases on the island. The British did. Yeah. Mm. Now, I say peacefully, but in the early 1950s, an anti-British nationalist movement was founded on Cyprus. This is called the National Organization of Cypriot Fighters, or EOKA, uh, which was dedicated to the cause of Enosis, union with Greece. So the leader of EOKA was a former officer in the Greek army, a hero of the Greek resistance to the Nazis. Uh, his name was Yorgos Grivas, and he was working with the Archbishop of Cyprus, Archbishop Makarios, to oust the British. Aoka thought, we've got to get rid of the British, and once we get rid of the British, then we can unite with Greece. So to that end, a guerrilla campaign of increasing brutality against British agents in Cyprus began. The British counterattacked. The Greek government was secretly providing armaments to Aoka. It grew bloody. This sounds very much like what happened to the British, you know, during their mandate over the Israel-Palestine uh, territories. Yeah, very you know. similar. Yeah, the same, like, you know, I mean, what happened in the Malaya, what happened in Kenya, oh my God, like, you know, I mean, it's always the same story, like, you know, I mean, the British fighting insurgents. It's true, you know, the end of the British Empire was full of these, well, what about India? We uh, are The last episode, the partition in India, you know, the British Empire ended with this, with calls for partition, with calls for ethnic cleansing, with, you know, ugh, it was, a, it was really difficult. Yes, but what about the 20% inhabitants of the island? The Cypriot Turks were really nervous about union with Greece because in the island of Cyprus, they are 20%. They will have 20% of the season parliament. They will have some influence. But if they are part of a much greater Greek population, their influence would be completely diluted and they will have no say whatsoever. They were afraid of that. And that is why 
they were advocating for something else completely different in a, from the policy of union with Greece. They were advocating for Taksim. Taksim is yet another Arabic loan <laughs> word into Turkish, sorry, Ataturk, which means partition. So they advocated for partition. Yeah, so the Greeks were advocating union with Greece. The Turks were advocating partition uh, between Greeks and Turks, two separate states, very similar to the Palestinian situation and the Palestinian debate that had gone on a few years before. Uh, you know, it, the Turks had reason to be afraid. I mean, Cypriot Turks, I'm talking about. Intercommunal violence broke out between the Cypriot Greeks and the Cypriot Turks. And it was really mainly the Greek majority attacking the Turkish minority. The Turks, I think, rightly feared for their lives. Indeed, and I think the sentiments, unfortunately, among the Greek Cypriots were rather inflammatory and poisonous towards you know, the Turkish inhabitants of the islands. They were viewing them for some reason as invaders, even though they were there for hundreds of years, and they were always viewed as if they were non-indigenous to the island. One can see this more widely. There was still a lot of tension and violence between Greek speakers and Turkish speakers you know, inside Turkey. You know, many hundreds of thousands of Greeks still lived in Turkey, uh, and there were pogroms in Istanbul against Greek communities. So the Greeks in Turkey felt like they were being attacked, rightly, by Turks. In Cyprus, this spilled over, Greeks attacking Turks there. It was uh, you know, a very sad story, a sort of story that we're familiar with here on Conflicted. Well, in the end, in 1960, in London, Greece and Turkey and representatives from both Cypriot communities agreed a compromise solution. Cyprus gained its independence and would have a Greek-speaking president, but it would have a Turkish-speaking vice president, and each would have the power of veto. 30% of government ministers would be Turks. This was the compromise. At the same time, the British would retain their two big military bases on the island, and Greece and Turkey would station army contingents of their own on the island to guarantee its independence. The first president of independent Cyprus was the Archbishop Makarios. And if that sounds weird, remember the Ottoman legacy. Churchmen <laughs> were the ethnarchs, as they were called in Greek, of their people. People were guided by religious leaders. Most of the archbishop's appointments to the government were Aoka members, still passionate about Enosis, and most Turkish-speaking ministers were still aiming for Taksim. So the solution that was brokered in London soon broke down, and fighting broke out again in 1963, requiring UN peacekeepers to get involved. And we're really talking about deaths in the hundreds population displacements, burning down of villages. I mean, serious violence. Poor Father Makarios. The man really wanted, as we say in Arabic, to hold the stick from the middle and, you know, to please everyone because he wanted the whole of uh, Cyprus to be united, but also at the same time, not part of Greece. That in the end did not please anyone, you know. Yeah. So, you know, it it shows that you cannot please everyone. Yeah, he was looking for a neutral solution, neither Enosis or Taksim, which uh, got everyone's backs up. Actually, now the big thing that happened in 1967 in Greece, a military junta came to power in a coup. Now that's a huge story in its own right, but for now, the new Greek regime in Athens supported Enosis union with Greece, a Cypriot union with Greece, and Archbishop Makarios was standing in their way. In 1971, Aoka comes back and begins paramilitary operations on Cyprus again, 
This time, though, largely fighting other Greeks, Greeks who were opposed to Enosis. Uh, the Cypriot National Guard was allied with the junta in Athens, and all of this culminated in 1974 to a coup against Archbishop Makarios, sponsored by Greece, carried out by the Cypriot National Guard, and a new passionately pro-Enosis government was installed in Nicosia, the capital of Cyprus. Turkey was not pleased. <laughs> no one was pleased to some extent, except, you know, Greece. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that coup really got rid of Makarios, but also got rid of any chance of peaceful coexistence on the island. Turkey called on Britain to fulfill its obligations and to intervene to protect the island's neutrality. But Britain, you know, this is 1974, Britain just was not in the mood. It refused. So, Turkey invaded. So the Prime Minister of Turkey, Bolant Ajawid, decided that now is the time. It's now or never. If we don't intervene, there could be the possibility or the probability of ethnic cleansing on the island and that the Turkish minority there were really in peril. Or at least that's what he said, and that is the narrative of the Turkish government at the time. So the troops were sent and they established beachheads and they started pushing the Greek military and Ayoka militias all the way back to what we know, now know as the separating line between the two. The green line, republics. another green line. <laughs> yeah, we have Belfast and we have goodness how many other. Talking about Belfast and Ireland, like, in, I mean, another island, you know, where the British were there and, you know, it went into, <laughs> well, poop. <laughs> how many partitions now have we, have we, uh, have we, with Kashmir, Palestine, now Cyprus? Yeah, Yemen, uh, it was partitioned between North and South, you know, so, yeah, talk about it. So, reality here is that the Turks, when they established that green line, it became the line through which you know, Greeks in the north will flee south and uh, Turks in the south will flee north. And a, I would say like a transfer of population happened yeah. quite it quickly, a, actually. It was a sad echo of the transfer of populations after the Smyrna disaster in 1922, uh, where both sides swapped population. And, and that's largely where it remains. 30% or so of the island, uh, a, a Turkish northern republic and the internationally recognized Republic of Greece centered in the south of the island with the Greek speakers. And it was a real war. It lasted several weeks. The Greek army got involved. There was serious fighting. It was a real war. Uh, and uh, the consequences of that war remain with us to this day. Now, I think coming to the end of this very long, very twisting episode of Conflicted, that it's ironic that during the Middle Ages, when the jihad against the Eastern Roman Empire was at its most persistent, the island of Cyprus was peacefully ruled by a neutral condominium where power was shared equally by both parties. And yet now, the island is bitterly divided between two fiercely nationalistic ethnic communities. Nationalism, Amen. Nationalism, it is the problem. You're a big supporter, but nationalism, it just brings chaos wherever it comes. Thomas, 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 how many times I have to tell you, it's not the nation state. It is the absence of monarchy. Oh, <laughs> well, we've come full circle. We started with Queen Elizabeth's <laughs> Platinum Jubilee. Uh, and here you, you once again haranguing me about the need for a monarch. So you think that a monarch, a king of Cyprus, would solve the problem of Cyprus? Yes. They could have proclaimed King Makarios 
And uh, <laughs> <laughs> an archbishop, uh, maybe you mean the caliph then, uh, one man to uh, unite within his person secular and uh, religious, religious authority. authority. Dear listener, thank you for listening to this long and complex episode of Conflicted. I think, if nothing else, it's done a great job of setting up our next episode, which is a story of ethnic, intercommunal, sectarian violence and chaos, compared to which Cyprus was a walk in the park. I'm referring to, of course, that beautiful land on the other side of the Levantine Sea, Lebanon. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MHConflicted. And for a deeper dive on some of the subjects we cover here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Those of you who already subscribe to the show will know that at the end of each episode, Eamon and I pick a question sent in by a lucky listener to answer for our exclusive bonus content section. To access that content, be in with a chance of getting your question answered, and to listen ad-free, you can subscribe to the show for just 99p on Apple Podcasts, or sign up to Conflicted Extra on Spotify, also for just 99p. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by B. Duncan. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Production support and fact-checking by Talia Augustidis. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. Conflicted.